A congressionally mandated panel was tasked with coming up with recommendations for improving how the Defense Department buys. After three years of work, the Section 809 panel delivered nearly 100 ideas, detailed in three volumes. Now it's work finished, the panel is about to pack up. Joining me in studio for the wrap, the 809 panel chairman, David Drabkinen. David, uh, first of all, let's start with what is the specific timeline? How long have you got before the 809 panel closes the final book? Uh, July 14th, which happens to be a Sunday, is our very last day for official existence. Will you have 809 cupcakes brought in or something? Or? <laughs> Actually, no. Uh, we, we've kind of been uh, winding down for several months. We're at the point now that we have one professional staff left. And, of course, we have all 16 of the commissioners left, but they're all spread to the wind doing what they did before they came to the panel. And we should point out 809 refers to the section of the 2016 National Defense Authorization Act, which gave rise to the panel. And if you would just review in the briefest way what those 100, or I guess 98, recommendations were all about. Well, Tom, first of all, you know me. I can't be brief. (laughs) But uh, essentially what we did is we began with the premise that everything that we needed to do was to make sure that the defense acquisition system was capable of delivering capability to the warfighter inside the turn of near-peer competitors and non-state actors. And by the way, that means the Russians, the Chinese, and ISIS. And so we looked at various aspects of the system that – needed to be fixed from our perspective. One of our driving forces is we realized from the very beginning, or we agreed, um, we all knew, but we agreed that the department doesn't value speed, doesn't value time. It doesn't, it, whatever long it takes, it takes. So if it takes 18 months to buy a computer, it takes 18 months in the private sector it doesn't take that long. And what an amazing irony for someone, for a department whose conduct in the real world requires speed above all things. Well, keep in mind that our defense acquisition system served us well. We won the Cold War through that system. Our system was predicated upon those kinds of threats and how you could deal with them. We had time to develop the best systems in the world. Not the case today. The Russians and the Chinese are going around buying whatever they see that they think it would be helpful in, 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 in their adversarial role with the United States. Whereas the United States, we see things that are interesting, and, but we can't grab them and give them to our operators and test them with, with certain limited exceptions. So, for example… We looked at what SOCOM was doing, the the Special Operations Command, and and they found a way to look at neat new things and get them immediately to the operators to employ. But across our whole system in the Department of Defense, we can't do that, which is why we made the recommendation in both Volume 3 and in our roadmap that the defense acquisition system be put on a war footing. All right. And what is your sense of the take-up of that general idea and some of the specifics from the Pentagon? I mean, you say the Pentagon, but really there's thousands of people involved in all of these acquisitions and this whole system, this whole complex. Well, I mean, actually, when you look at the whole system, it it does kind of demonstrate – why it takes so long to do so many things. We have incredible numbers of layers. 
We have requirements to get approvals from uh, from the point of action all the way back to the Pentagon. In those processes, things have to be reviewed multiple times. And so we've made recommendations in a number of places to reduce those layers, to reduce the amount of paper. But, but at the end of the day, uh, what we're talking about is taking the time um, – to plan and be strategic in how you buy things. So in response to how they've taken it up, uh, the the Office of the Secretary of Defense did comment on our report. Their comment was basically, for the most part, they agreed, but they required more study. They, they actually didn't do very much. So they're taking the time to look at ideas for reducing time. <laughs> Well, yes, and, and and I don't I don't minimize the fact that some of our recommendations do do need to be looked at, but uh, I also recognize, and so did we as a panel, that uh, the that Mrs. Lord, the Under Secretary of Defense for Acquisition and Strategy, has already been working for eighteen months, almost now two years. In, in doing what she thinks needs to be done and to interrupt her process to t- take and adopt our recommendations, it would be disruptive at least. Although I have to tell you that we've got a lot of very good recommendations and there's some things that she could do today that would make a big difference and she could literally do them by herself with a stroke of a pen. We're speaking with David Drabkin until July 14th, anyhow, the chairman of the Section 809 panel. Give us an example of something that Ellen Lord could do with the stroke of a pen that would speed up acquisition. Actually, I think I have six. So the very first thing that they could do is when they buy commercial items, they could use the simplified acquisition procedures already authorized both in statute and the FAR instead of using FAR Part 15 formal source selections. One of the things we dis- we discovered as we did our research is for some reason the department likes to use FAR Part 15, which generally results in 12 to 18 months of time, whereas under the simplified acquisition procedures already authorized by law and in the regulation, they could do it in a matter of weeks, uh, certainly no longer than months. A second uh, thing that she could do today is that she could direct the department to use only the fair opportunity procedures for awarding task and delivery orders. Again, we found that for some reason, people like to use FAR Part 15 formal source selections to issue a task or delivery order against the contract which they've already used FAR Part 15 procedures. The fair opportunity procedures... Belt and suspenders. Absolutely. And and it adds time to the process and little evidence of value to that process. Another thing they could do today would be to enhance debriefings. Everybody talks about how debriefings are a good thing, but the actual implementation by the department we found is not it, – it's spotty and it's not pervasive Enhanced debriefings provide information to industry about how they can do better the next time. And we think there's a correlation between enhanced debriefings and fewer protests. Now, just a quick interjection on that one. I think the 2020 defense authorization bill lowers the threshold for enhanced debriefings, but only to $50 million. So a lot of these small, agile, quick to insert into the warfighter situation are way less than $50 million. So it seems like they didn't go very far. Well, if you look at the RAND study that was done last year on protests, it shows you that the majority of the protests are below 
uh, way below $50 million. In fact, I think the number was below $100,000, which is, when you think about it, a small dollar amount. And you could reduce those protests by providing those businesses with better debriefings. And because it's $50 million to a big contractor is the equivalent of 50000 to a small company. Well, actually, today, any dollar amount's a big deal because the consolidation of the base and their competition. Sure. I mean, you have big companies competing for $150,000 contracts or $250,000 contracts, things they would never have done uh, a decade ago. Uh, but that's the nature of the market and how it's contracting. We also think that today they could immediately implement better interaction with the industry. Uh, you know, we've been talking about MythBusters since Dan Gordon was administrator of OFPP, yep. trying to convince people it's not against the law to talk to industry and that there are advantages to talking to industry. Now, there are some limitations. I mean, once an RFP is issued and proposals are returned to the government and they're under consideration, there's some limitations on discussions, although not prohibitions. Anyway, they could in today – improve that by making people talk to industry, by collecting through that process intelligence on what industry has to offer, not only for the current procurement, but in terms of future procurements as well. And it's something that we found is woefully missing and doesn't require congressional action. Another thing they could do today is through the requirements process, reduce the number of times where they require everybody in a service contract to have a security clearance. We looked at numerous contracts where the focus of the contract had nothing to do with classified information, yet we required everybody to be cleared on the other side. That costs money. It takes time. I mean, it costs a private sector company over $25,000 to get a single security clearance, and it takes months which makes it difficult for you to deliver where there is no real need uh, for a security clearance. And that's all – that all begins in the requirements process, which Ms. Lord could impact in the contracting process. And if I understand the recommendations as a whole correctly, you tried to come up with ideas that do not require congressional action but could – I mean, are you suggesting that a congressional action might be to tell the Defense Department, adopt what the 809 panel said? Uh, and, and when you read some of our recommendations, that's exactly what we said. We looked at what we thought needed to be done. We, th we, we agreed that it didn't have to be a result of a congressional action. But unless Congress tells the department to do it, we were concerned that they wouldn't make the change. There are other actions where we felt that congressional action was absolutely necessary because statutes needed to be fixed. And by the way, that's one of the things that distinguishes our report from many, many, many of the other reports that have been done over time. When you look at the, the length of our report, over 2,700 pages, you find that over half of that is the actual language that Congress or the department could use to implement our recommendations. We have places in there where we drafted a letter for the SECDEF on our small business recommendations and recommendation number 21 on the pivot. We have places in there where we provided actually a draft rewrite of 5000.1 for program management associated with our portfolio recommendations. Well, it sounds like 
I'm reading between the lines is your fear that this whole effort, and it was a three-year effort, and it involved several dozen people full-time, plus professionals, plus you had a support staff, that this will go the way of so many of these recommendations that get generated in Washington and shelfware, and then in 10 years we'll say, remember Drapkin and the 809 panel? Well, you know, I was there, I I was working in the department when the Section 800 panel made its report in 1993 when uh, it sent to Congress. Just after your bar mitzvah? Uh, No, no, no. I had been bar mitzvahed many, many years. I'm old, Tom. I'm very (laughs) old. But but our report, I I think it's fair to say that our commissioners believe we were given a job find a way to make sure that our defense acquisition system could supply the capability to the warfighter inside the turn of our near-peer competitors and non-state actors. Value time. We made 98 recommendations with many sub-recommendations. We provided actual language and we've given it to Congress. What they do with it now truly is up to them. I'm, I'm not afraid that they won't do anything with it. Of course, personally, I have some investment in it, and so do my colleagues from the staff to the commissioners. But just like the Section 800 panel report, you know, the report was sent to Congress. It took them a year or two to get the report into FASA. Then there was a subsequent bill in Klinger-Cohen that included some of the recommendations. And over time, a couple of decades, there have been pieces from the Section 800 panel that have found its way into statute or regulation. I think the same thing might happen here. One of our recommendations will really require time. I mean, our recommendation 35 on readily available is something that you can't implement tonight. It's something that you have to set up. You have to divide. Uh, readily available refers to? It refers to buying things that are you, that you and I can buy with a cash, with cash check or credit card. It includes cots. It includes commercial items. It includes non-developmental MRO. items. Um, yeah. It, it is stuff that no one has to develop uniquely for the Department of Defense. And that's just about everything out there except ships, planes, and missiles. I won't forget tanks. Tanks are not. <laughs> Even Sherman tanks, as the president referred to the other day, if there's any left. I don't get into politics. Could be um, we're, unmothballed. We're, complete, we're completely independent and, and agnostic when it comes to politics. But, um, yeah, I mean – On the readily available, we've proposed for the government a radical new approach, which would significantly change both how we do competition, uh, increase significantly the amount of transparency we provide into how we do our acquisitions, and guarantee to the extent you can guarantee anything, prevention, you know, the, the reinforcement of integrity in our process and the avoidance of corruption. And do you expect to be called again to the Hill at this point to testify? That would be a good way to. Well, get we, this. we we had hoped. I think it's fair to say many of us had hoped that we would have gotten an opportunity to testify about our report this uh, this session. I don't think that's in the cards. Congress has got a lot on its plate. There are a lot of other issues not associated with with our report. Uh, that they're considering. I would say that some of the recent events have made it unlikely that, for example, our revolutionary recommendations on how to 
deal with fiscal issues will be adopted. We made recommendations to provide greater flexibility to portfolio managers with the money that they're given by Congress, but the president's movement of money to build the wall is probably 86, that recommendation, at least in this session, although it's essential to providing the flexibility we need to beat the Russians and Chinese in terms of delivering capability to our warfighters. And at some point, there will be a permanent Secretary of Defense when all of these different authorities and overlapping I'm available, <laughs> sessions for uh, for who can serve and acting and so forth. You have to you need a slide rule to figure it all out. Do you see a mechanism by which this report can at least be part of the a list of attention items that whoever that person might be uh, gets to on in his or her desk? I, I'm afraid that that there's so much else going on that uh, and as I said earlier, Ellen Lord has had a plan. She's been there for a while. She's trying to do what she thinks needs to be done. I doubt seriously she's going to bring our report all 2,700 pages. Although we have that roadmap. You didn't mention that up front. We do have a roadmap to our report, which makes it much easier to read, and it's a lot shorter. Um, and uh, But I doubt that the secretary will get to see that. It's unfortunate, I think, that uh, Secretary Mattis, for example, would have found many things in our report that reflect his view of how to how to achieve the national defense posture he envisioned. We'll see. It is a good read. I recommend it. David Drabkin is chairman of the Section 809 panel. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Tom. And listen, don't forget me once I'm no longer the chair. You are unforgettable. <laughs> Find a link to more information and to this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or Podcast One. <coughs> Cough and cold season is here. Introducing Ricola Max Throat Care, Ricola's most powerful drop yet. It's the best of Swiss nature wrapped around a powerful liquid menthol center for maximum relief from your worst cough and sore throat. Maximum nature for maximum relief. Try the new Ricola Max now, available in the cold and cough aisle. Ricola. It's in our nature.